Morning. Okay, we are still in the book of 2 Corinthians uh, in our Address a Mess series. Uh, and I'm going to try to make this brief recap actually brief because we have a lot to cover today. Um, but this is uh, one of the most powerful letters that Paul wrote, the Apostle Paul wrote. It's one of the most personal, it's one of the most autobiographical. And the reason it's so powerful is he had a personal connection to this church. He uh, actually spent 14 or 15 months with these people when he was trying to establish it. And he left there feeling confident that this church was actually going to accomplish great things, only to find out that they got themselves into a huge mess. So he wrote the first letter thinking this will handle it. It didn't. Because when he stopped by, it was a mess. They just hadn't grasped it yet. And uh, they were actually getting even more petty and more immature. Uh, And they were holding grudges against the Apostle Paul and questioning his integrity uh, and saying that he shouldn't be an apostle just because... He didn't, he changed the day he was going to come to see them and the route he was going to take. And I know that sounds silly, but that's what set him off. And they said we couldn't be trusted and shouldn't be an apostle. Uh, But that's just a sign of what was going on inside of them. They had issues in here. And so when you have issues in here, you're not dealing with, a lot of times you try to project those to other people and that's what they were doing. So he decided to write them another letter, uh, not just to defend himself, but also to remind them that struggle and ministry walk hand in hand and that it can be uh, you can come out of that victoriously if you trust God through it instead of compromising. And so that's kind of why he wrote this, this other letter. Uh, now, today Paul's going to discuss the value for everybody in collecting offerings for ministry. Uh, and whenever you have to preach on, mini- on giving in ministry, people always go, oh, great, here we go. But there's a, so much to learn from it. So I titled the message today, The Process, the Preparation, the Provision. Okay, now we can start into the message. So 2 Corinthians chapter 8, we're going to try to go all the way through chapter 9. So get comfortable. So starting in verse 16, he says, but thank God he has given Titus the same enthusiasm for you that I have. That's a high praise for someone. He's saying Titus is excited about your success as I am. Verse 17, Titus welcomed our request that he visit you again. In fact, he himself was very eager to go and see you. Now it's important to note that the giving mentioned in verses 16 through 24 of chapter 8 Uh, are corporate, not individual. Now, does it include the responsibility of the individual? Yes. But we're talking about a church gathering money for another church that's struggling. So he wasn't talking to individuals. He was talking to a church, but also addressing the individual in those churches, each individual in it. Now, um, in verse 16 and 17, Paul reminded them that, you know, Titus came to you one other time to do these collections. 2 Corinthians 8, 6, as we looked at last week, he said, so we have urged... Titus, who encouraged your giving in the first place, to return to you and encourage you to finish this ministry of giving. But for some reason, Titus didn't get to finish those collections, and so he had to leave. And now this would be his second trip uh, going back uh, for this collection. Uh, And not only was he going back to finish up this offering, most theologians believe this is when they dropped off uh, the letter, this very letter, to the Corinthians. So it was a really important visit. Now on the surface, when you talk about this offering for the other churches, to us it sounds strange. Because churches have struggles even working together anymore. Churches are like in competition anymore, which is totally awful. I don't like that a bit. Uh, but they're almost in competition with each other. So the idea of, of providing for another church is kind of foreign to us. But think of it this way. This is probably the easiest way to relate to it. In our time, it would be kind of like uh, doing a special missions offering. Have you ever seen a church do an offering just for missions? Uh, it'd be kind of like that, or it'd be kind of like doing a mission uh, or an offering for a church plant. So it's kind of, in our terms, that's more what it would be like. 
Now, you have to remember, back then, these resources were not to go out and buy the pastor a new car. Okay, these resources were vital to the survival and preservation of the church. Remember, they were being severely persecuted, and the Romans and the Jews wanted nothing more than to shut those churches down. So these finances were absolutely critical to these churches. Now, remember, in Paul's time, it's not like in our time. There were no church bank loans. There were no church lines of credit. If you weren't taken care of by other believers, if you didn't depend on the, the faith and generosity of other believers, you just couldn't make it. So planting and supporting churches was so, so important because, remember, these churches were the epicenter of the gospel in each region, right? And this was how they were going to evangelize every region was by planting these churches and supporting them. Now, in fact, it was so vital that he couldn't just enlist anybody to go and collect this offering. So he put together, if you will, kind of a dream team to go uh, pick up this offering. And Paul's role in the dream team was what I call the initiator. So he kind of initiated the plan and the process here. Uh, he initiated the collection for the church, uh, and a lot of theologians believe he personally contributed it to it. And remember, he wasn't a wealthy man, but he worked. He, he was a tent maker. He didn't accept money for himself, not because it was wrong for him to accept money for himself, but he was so scrutinized, he didn't want to give him anything to talk about. So he was working with his hands, and many theologians believe he was actually contributing to this very collection. But once he planned the collection, it's kind of neat. After he planned it, he stepped aside because he wanted the other believers to actually carry this process out. He wanted them to get involved. See, sometimes leaders want to do it all. And when you do that, you become uh, the jack of all traits and the master of none, and things just don't get done right. Well, Paul realized that, listen, you know, I need to step back and let these guys do this. And also, he was probably worried because remember, his pre-salvation, before he was saved, his reputation was pretty intimidating because before he was saved, he was the greatest persecutor the church had ever seen at the, up to that time. He was putting uh, Christians in jail and some of them were being put to death just because they were believers. So he was afraid that when he would go into town, imagine the guy who used to persecute and put people in prison coming to you and saying, yeah, I'd like to collect some money uh, for some of the other churches. They might give out of fear or they might just run. Right? So he thought, maybe I should send somebody a little less intimidating than myself uh, to, get this, uh, to collect this, this offering. Now, the next two men he mentions on the Dream Team, for some reason, were unnamed, and nobody really knows why. They just were unnamed, right? So look at this, 2 Corinthians 8, 18 through 21. He said, we are also sending another brother with Titus. All the churches praise him as a preacher of the good news. Now remember, preacher just means one who proclaims divine truth. Verse 19, he was appointed by the churches to accompany us as we take the offering to Jerusalem, uh, a service that glorifies the Lord and shows our eagerness to help. We are traveling together to guard against any criticism for the, uh, the way we are handling this generous gift. We are careful to be honorable, honorable before the Lord, uh, but we also want everyone else to see that we are honorable. Now, uh, the first unnamed teammate, I'm just going to call him the celebrity. Because Paul said he was famous. He literally said he was famous. And he wasn't famous because he was an actor. He wasn't famous because he was a tech giant or in a Jerusalem boy band or anything. He was famous because he literally was known for his passion for sharing the gospel. He championed the gospel in his areas, and he was known for that. He was famous for being the kind of person who was constantly focused on the Word of God and sharing the Word of God. So most likely, he had the gift of evangelism. 
okay? Now, you can have the gift of evangelism and not be an evangelist that travels around like the, what we think of as an evangelist. When you go out and share the gospel with people and try to bring people to the Lord, you are doing the work of an evangelist, right? You're just doing the work of an evangelist. Because history doesn't teach us, there's no evidence in history that he was a pastor or even a teacher in a church. He was just a person who loved to share the gospel, right? He was just, he just loved to share the gospel. And a lot of people, when it says that he was a preacher of righteousness, people say, well, that says he was a pastor. It doesn't. Because a preacher, when you talk at work about the gospel, that's preaching according to the definition. If you tell your family at a family reunion about the gospel, and according to the definition, that's preaching. There's a big difference between preaching and pastoring. He was not a pastor of any church that we could see, but he was an evangelist who preached the gospel to people, meaning the people he came in contact with uh, every day. Uh, now, a lot of scholars think that he was wealthy and that he already had everybody's respect because back then, especially in Corinth, people really respected the wealthy and those who were notable. Uh, and there also is a lot of evidence, there's a lot of evidence that he also personally donated to this cause. Now, we'll call the second unnamed teammate the accountant, uh, 2 Corinthians 8.22. He says, we are also sending with him another of our brothers who has proven himself many times and has shown on many occasions how eager he is. He is now even more enthusiastic because of his great confidence in you. Now, the accountant, this second unnamed brother, uh, a lot of history teaches this man was very passionate about the gospel, but he wanted to ensure that the funds came in, they came in the right way, and that they were kept secure, right? And he was very confident that the Spirit would move in people and that they would give. So he was the optimist that said, let's trust them to give. Let's just trust them to give. Uh, so we called him the accountant. Now, now that we finished chapter 8, we're going into chapter 9, okay? And in chapter 9, Paul goes into great depth about the process and the importance of giving. This is a chapter a lot of people like to skip church when it's being preached on. I'm just being honest. So 2 Corinthians 9, starting in verse 1. He says, I really don't need to write you about this ministry of giving for the believers in Jerusalem. For I know how eager you are to help. And I have been boasting to the churches in Macedonia that you uh, in Greece were ready to send an offering a year ago. In fact, it was your enthusiasm that stirred up many of the Macedonian believers to begin giving. Remember last week he talked about how passionately the Macedonians gave even though they were impoverished. And he said they were inspired by the giving here of the Corinthians. Verse 3, But I am sending these brothers uh, to be sure you really are ready, as I have been telling them, and that your money is all collected. I don't want to be wrong in my boasting about you. We would be embarrassed, not to mention your own embarrassment, if some Macedonian believers come with me and found that you weren't ready after all I had told them. So I thought... I should send these brothers ahead of me to make sure the gift you promised is ready. But I want it to be a willing gift, not one given grudgingly. So I love what Paul does here. I love how, I don't know if you noticed this, but I love how he nonchalantly guilt-tripped the Corinthians. And that's what he was doing. He nonchalantly guilt-tripped them because he'd known that they'd been compromised, right? He wasn't trying to force them to give, and we'll talk about that more as we move on in these verses. But... He, he knew that they had been compromised and that the Greco-Romans had kind of influenced them. So he was just reminding them of their once unshakable faith and commitment to God. He was reminding them, remember how you used to be so passionate, basically? And he masterfully reminded them that they were at one time not only willing to give, but they were willing to do it joyfully, right? Willing to do it joyfully. And then he told them, you know, if, 
you know, if you have a change of heart, after, you know, I've been bragging on you guys. I've been telling everybody how graciously you gave and how passionate you were about giving. And boy, it would be a shame if I came there and, and you proved me to be a liar. How embarrassing would that be? So, it, you know, in a way, he kind of, you know, let them know that he, I expect good things from you, and he kind of guilt-tripped them a little bit. And I had no problem with that. <laughs> but, you know, he wasn't judging them. He understood they'd been compromised. He was just reminding them of who they were, right? But he wasn't judging them. You know, in the evil world we live in, sometimes good people get in bad situations. Believers, sometimes we get in bad situations. It just happens. And those bad situations can put a lot of pressure on even the strongest of believers. Remember, John the Baptist got in a bad situation and sent his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the Messiah or should we find another? He was basically saying, hey, I'm sitting in jail. All right, I'm about to be killed for preparing the way for you. And here I am about to die, and you're not you know, freeing me. Are, did I back the wrong horse? But Jesus, when they walked away, said, uh, what did you expect? To see a reed shaken in the wind? He said, never a man born a woman is as great as this man. So right after he doubted his very messiahship, he says, what a great man that is. Because he knows that everyone gets in bad situations psychologically sometimes. And sometimes when you get in those difficult situations... You're tempted to compromise. You get tempted to compromise. And sometimes we even give in to the temptation to compromise. And when that happens, the enemy loves it because he brings out the guilt and the shame. That's what the enemy does when you start struggling. He brings out the guilt and the shame and the regret for you being willing to give in to that temptation. And then he starts working on your mind. And, I mean, there's times... That when we give in to compromise, we find ourselves doing things we wouldn't have done even a year ago. If you've ever got, how many people have ever gotten a funk? You can be honest, spiritually. Anybody ever gotten a funk? Just three of us, the rest of you guys are amazing. But when you get in a funk, sometimes you can look six months later after it started and you're going, I can't believe I'm doing this. I can't believe I'm saying this. I would have never done this before. Why am I out of church? How did I let somebody make me mad and make me run from God because I was mad at a person? How did I allow myself to get to this point? Sometimes we end up there, and then the devil steps in and says, Oh, see, now you're done. God's not going to have anything to do with you now. You are a failure. You're a failure, and there's no hope for you. So you might as well just give up and go for the gusto, because God's done with you. He whispers that in our ears. And that guilt and shame has kept a lot of good believers down. See, God knew we sinned. He knew sometimes we compromise and make mistakes. That's why he sent his son to pay the sin debt for us. That's why. And when the enemy whispers in our ear, oh, you've messed up. You know, you, God doesn't want anything to do with you now. That's the total opposite of what the Bible teaches us because God's forgiveness is amazing, as is his grace. If you look at 1 John 1, 8 and 9, and if you've been saved a long time, you probably have this memorized. He says, if we claim to have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, all wickedness. Think about that. Those people that the devil was deceiving, the Corinthians no doubt were ashamed. The reason they were attacking Paul is Paul brought out the flaws. Paul brought out the fact that they had compromised. And they were guilty and they were ashamed. That's why they were attacking Paul. So imagine what the devil was whispering in their ears. And Paul was saying, listen, I remember what you were. And I know what you can be. Look back to that. And that's how I want you to support this church. So 
he was saying, listen, I want you to make sure you remember if you're not done just because you got into a jam. Here's a chance for you to step up and do the right thing. Now, in verses 6 through 15, Paul would explain the blessing of giving voluntarily and generously to God. Now, verses 9, or chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. He says, now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly, listen, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now that's the NASB, which is probably the most accurate of all the translations. However, I love the way the NLT words this, and I think it's probably a little more accurate, because what's happening here is Paul is using an agricultural illustration. Because one of the biggest industries then and now is agriculture. These people understood agriculture, right? Uh, You've got to remember, these people didn't run down to Costco to get their stuff. They grew it, you know? So they understood this concept. But here's how it was worded in the New Living. It says, remember this, a farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop. But the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. Uh, you must each decide in your heart how much to give. And don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure, for God loves a person who gives cheerfully. Now, I asked Dave Perkins, our resident farmer here, uh, some questions. I said, listen, explain these verses to me from a farmer's perspective. And what he told me really gave me some insight. Because, let's be honest with you, I have no clue about that stuff. I thought they'd just throw seed in the ground and pick it up a few months later and get rich. Right? Evidently, that's not the case. Okay, here's what he explained to me. Uh, If a farmer plants 32,000 seeds of corn per acre of land, the yield they can expect is 220 bushels for that. That's what they can expect. But if a farmer takes that same parcel of land and only plants 16,000 seeds, he's not going to get the same yield. He's only going to get about 100 bushels. Now, they may have saved money by only planting 16,000 seeds, but... In the end, it didn't benefit them. You can't be angry with God because they didn't bring in the same bushels they would if they'd have planted the extra seed. Listen, when you plant enough, what you plant, you get, right? That's what they were teaching. And Dave was talking to me about putting it in a more personal note. If you're a gardener and you're gardening for your family, do you plant one tomato plant, one stalk of corn? No, I mean, if you want to be able to feed your family, if you want to be able to provide for your family out of that garden, you plant enough to take care of everyone. Right? You reap what you sow, basically, and what you plant, if you plant bountifully, you you reap bountifully. Right? Now, Paul was actually really quoting Proverbs 11.24. He just worded it a little different. Look at this, Proverbs 11.24. He says, There is one who scatters and yet increases all the more. And there is one who withholds what is justly due, and yet it results only in want. See, a lot of people misinterpret what Paul was you know, Paul and the writer of Proverbs was trying to teach here. They're not saying that those who give generously will always be able to expect financial gain. That's not what they're teaching here. Uh, That kind of thinking makes the Word of God sound like a Merrill Lynch ad. Okay, and that's not what it is. This isn't about investing to get rich, right? Paul and the writer of Proverbs were talking about being generous so that you could get spiritual gain. That's what they were talking about, right? And it's really important to remember that Jesus told us in Matthew chapter 6 that the only kind of profit that actually matters is spiritual profit. The rest of it doesn't matter. Matthew 6, 19. Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven 
where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, what? There your heart will be also. Very, very important. Okay? See, here's the way we're supposed to look at it. There's nothing wrong with being wealthy. There's nothing wrong with that. That's not what I'm saying. Abraham was probably in our, if you, you did the math, probably a billionaire in our terms. Okay? He was very wealthy. There's nothing wrong with being wealthy. It's just that can't be what drives you. Right? As a believer, we have to trust that if we do what's right, God will give us what we need. Right? God will give us what we need. And everything we have is from him. So we should be willing to be generous because everything we have is actually his. Right? Now, there's an important disclaimer here that Paul puts in. And we've got we to gotta pay attention to this. 2 Corinthians 9, 7. He says, you must each decide in your own heart how much to give. Uh, and don't give what? reluctantly or in response to pressure for God loves a person who gives cheerfully I don't know if you've ever been to a church where they really pressure you to give but it's awkward right and everybody's probably heard the stories of the church that shuts the door in the back and tell you I don't know if that's true I've never been there because I'd be kicking that door down right I don't know but you know the reason we have boxes on the wall and ways to give that are more private is because it's between you and God. I'm not going to shove a basket in your face and make you feel obligated to give. The Bible actually tells us not to do that. It tells us not to do that, right? We're supposed to give freely from our own heart. God doesn't want someone to give reluctantly because they've been pressured into giving, right? He doesn't want them to do that because God doesn't want a free will offering that's not free will, right? He doesn't want that. It's not what God is doing this for. Not only should we give voluntarily, but it also says we should give with a cheerful heart. Now, when I first heard that, be honest, when you first heard that, was that strange for you? Was that hard to grasp? Somebody's telling you, I want you to give to God, and you're thinking, what's he going to do with it? Right? And then they're saying, and I want you to give generously, and you're thinking, I'll bet you do. And then he says, and I want you to give happily, and I'm like, okay, I don't get it. That's where you lost me. You're pressuring me into give, and now you're saying do it with a big smile on my face. I feel like a phony, right? I didn't get it when I first got saved. That was a real struggle for me. I, I didn't understand that. But what was he saying when he said give with a cheerful heart? He meant that we are to give excited to see how God is going to use it, right? When I give now, I, you know, I try to challenge myself to push my offering because I've seen what God's done with it. Around the world, I've seen what he's done and the lives he's changed. And when I give, I can honestly say I'm cheerful because I know what, what I give is going to make the difference in a lot of people's lives. And do I have to see it? No. Because I trust God with it. So what he's saying is we are supposed to be happy because we trust what God is going to do with that. It's kind of like how you feel when you buy someone you love a Christmas present. You know how joyful you get when you are spending how many people have ever bought your kids something you really shouldn't have because it was too expensive you know and when you're first buying it you're thinking Ooh, i'm probably pushing the limits here but when they open it you start getting excited before they even open it saying i can't wait to see the look on their face when they get this you know that that gift is going to make them happy and it's going to please them that's kind of what it's talking about with god when you push yourself a little bit saying, I'm excited to see what God is going to do with this. It's that kind of excitement. Here's another kind of excitement in case you don't have kids. You know that excitement you get when you're saving up for something big you really want? You ever saved up for something big? When I was a kid, this sounds strange, when I was a kid, I had to save up for a baseball glove. 
it was 68 bucks, and back then that was like 140 bucks now, right? And I had to save up because I lost mine, and Dad said, I'm not getting you another one. <laughs> so I saved up, and, and I worked, and when I was able to go in there, that was a lot of money to me. You know, I was 13, 12, 13 years old. That was a lot of money. But I was so excited to lay that on the counter and get that glove. You know, I thought of all the lawns I mowed, all the trash I picked up to get that. And I was excited. I didn't even think about the financial loss. I thought about the gain. And that's what he's saying. Give cheerfully. Don't think about it as a loss. Think about it as I'm trusting this to the creator who gave it to me. And I know he's going to do amazing things with it. That's what he's talking about. Now, the word cheerful in the Greek is the word hilarious, which means one who is happy. It means give as one who is happy. What word do you think we get from that in English? What was it? Hilarious. Why did I tell you that? I don't know. It has no bearing on this message whatsoever, but now you know. All right. <laughs> That's one of those facts that you can just store away for trivia someday. Okay. And Paul added this disclaimer. I wanted to under explain this. He added this disclaimer because how we give reveals how we see and trust God. How we give reveals how we see and trust God. Here's the thing. God doesn't need our money. He owns everything, including everything we have. He owns it. Your 401Ks, your bank accounts, your cars, your homes, your lake homes, your boats. You know who owns that? God. You know who provided it for you? God. He owns everything, right? Everything. He doesn't need your money. Also, and all my board's going to choke when I say this, but... The church doesn't need your money. And the, all the elders are going, huh, we're in the middle of a campaign. No, that's not what I'm talking about. The church doesn't need your money because if God wants us to have it, he will provide it. But a lot of times God is using you to provide that so he can bless you for it. You see what I mean? So God doesn't need you to accomplish his will. He wants you to do that as a sign of how much you trust him. Remember, God can provide anything. God provided bread from heaven. Remember what was that called? Manna. They didn't have to do anything. God just provided it. Jesus fed 5,000. That was just men. Altogether, it's probably like 20,000 when you had women and children in, with a few loaves and a few fish, basically a sack lunch. And he provided for thousands upon thousands of people. God doesn't need our help providing, right? He just, he wants us to find something out about ourselves. See, God isn't testing us to find out what our priorities are. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. He already knows what our priorities are. He's God. He knows what our priorities are. He's trying to reveal to us where our priorities are. The reason he asked us to do this is so we can look within ourselves and say, gosh, I wasn't upset when I paid $1,500 for my golf membership. Why am I upset now when I'm giving to the Lord? You see what I mean? He wants us to look within ourselves and see where our priorities are. It's not so he can find out our priorities. It's so we can find out our priorities. We're just basically getting an honest assessment of what's truly important to us, right? Now, attending church and raising your hand during worship is awesome, and that's good, but it doesn't necessarily reveal our commitment uh, to our faith because only through sacrifice do we reveal our true commitment and faith, and that's what God is trying to teach us here, right? Now, that's the reason Paul said what he said in verses 9 through 15 we're about to read, because only those who believe in God's provision can cheerfully trust him with their resources without hesitation. That's what he's talking about here in verses 8 through 15. 
It says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, He scattered abroad, He gave to the poor, His righteousness endures forever. Now He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase uh, the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which uh, through us is producing thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but it is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. Because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience uh, to your confession of the gospel of Jesus Christ, or gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all. While they also by prayer on your behalf, yearn for you uh, because of the surpassing grace of God in you. Thank God for his gift of wonderful, uh, thank God for this gift too wonderful for words. Now, these verses, this is something you may not have heard of. These verses are actually teaching us uh, something called sufficiency theology. Sufficiency theology, okay? That won't, that'll be on the test. And this is not to be confused with another theology you probably have heard of called prosperity theology. How many people have heard of that? Okay, but don't confuse the two because prosperity theology is a false doctrine and it's taught by charlatans who are trying to pack their own pockets. Okay, and they will tell you things like, if you want to be rich, give and God will make you rich. They're the ones selling the prayer clause for $1,000. You know what I mean? Those, those doofuses. That's, that's, that's the ones that push prosperity theology. I saw one of those teachers one time say, uh, I, if those of you who think it's wrong to be rich, I'll drive by and wave the pink slip of my Rolls Royce in your face because if you're living right, you're supposed to be rich. If you're giving right, you're supposed to be rich, they'd say also. Think about that for a second. Jesus was dirt poor. The apostle Paul was dirt poor. There wasn't one of the apostles that, that had any money. Are you going to step out and say, hey, they weren't living right. They didn't have a rolls back in Jerusalem. You know what I mean? It's, that's a false doctrine. That's, don't get that confused, okay? Sufficiency theology teaches that God enables those who give for the right reasons to always have sufficient means to contribute to the support of his ministry. What he's saying is sufficiency theology teaches those who are generous, God will make sure you always have enough to be generous because he knows what you're going to do with it. So he makes sure you always have enough. That's what sufficiency theology teaches, and that is absolutely biblical. Paul is, again, kind of quoting in a roundabout way another Old Testament uh, uh, verse, but it's actually in Psalms, Psalms 1, 12, 9, and 10. He says, He has given freely to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Uh, his horn will be exalted in honor. The wicked will see it and be vexed. He will gnash his teeth and melt away. The desire of the wicked will perish. What this is talking about is... Have you ever known those people who seem to get offended when you talk about money in church? They seem to get offended. They seem to get angry, right? These are the carnal or worldly mindset you see in people when you talk about cheerful giving. They gnash their teeth at it. These are the ones that say churches are all about money. How many people have ever heard churches are all about money? Raise your hand. Yeah, you can look around and see the marble inlay in the floors and see this word is rolling in it, right? That, that's just the anger and bitterness they have inside them. Or these are the ones that scoff at people for supporting the cause of Christ. I've had people tell me before, have you ever looked at how much you give? Do you know what you could get with that? And I don't even, they don't know what I give. You know what I told them? Do you know what I am getting with it? 
I'm getting the satisfaction of knowing that people's lives are changed. And there's nothing I can buy that's more important to me than that. Because everything you can buy will rot away. But what I'm giving to changes eternal lives around the world. But the people who, who are vexed, the, the word vexed in the Hebrew literally means to be angry. They're angry and they're bitter. And the reason that they're angry and they're bitter is they still are deceived enough to believe that all their possessions are the result of their abilities. Remember the guy I talked about last week that said, don't thank God for it, I'm the one that worked for it? It's that kind of person, right? It's that kind of person. They're still deceived into thinking that they're the reason they have money. They've yet to realize that they aren't giving of their possessions, but possessions that God allows them to have. They're giving back his possessions. And you know, down deep, they're finding something out the more wealthy they get. There again, it's not wrong to be wealthy. Don't take me wrong. But the people I'm talking about are the bitter ones. And the reason they're getting more wealthy is they're finding out no matter what they buy, it doesn't buy peace. No matter how much they have, it doesn't bring joy. Because it's always something else that the devil will put in front of your face that you have to have. Right? And let's be honest, we all fall for that, don't we? How many people get suckered by the newest phone coming out? Be, okay, don't raise your hands because God knows. I'm just saying. <laughs> I am such a hypocrite because that's me too sometimes. But anyway, the truth is we all get sucked into that, don't we? Have you ever had a car that runs perfectly fine? It's a good vehicle. Your neighbor pulls in on a new one and you're going, mine's a piece of junk. You ever do that? Or you live in a home you're happy with. One of your friends gets a big home and you look around and go, <laughs> what a dump. I can't believe I live here. See, what that is is the enemy telling you it's not enough. He wants you to be discontent because the more time and money you focus on yourself, the less you focus on God and his purposes. That are the people, that's the people that he's talking about here who gnash and uh, are angry and vex. It's those people. But here's the thing. Here, I'll, ra I'll wrap it up this way. At the end of the day, people are uncomfortable with these verses for two reasons. There's, I'm sure there's a lot more reasons, but two that I'm going to discuss. Okay, either they don't like talking about giving because these verses reveal something to them about their priorities. That's one reason people don't like to talk about these things. Or they have yet to understand that everything in existence actually belongs to God. When they come to the realization, when you come to the realization that everything you have is His and what you do with it is really important because the same God who gives takes away, when you get to the point where you look at everything you have as a resource for seeing the will of God accomplished, then you'll find joy. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and stop there. We'll pick up there next week. I'm going to ask if you would to please bow your heads. And you're like, good luck with an invitation after that. But if this is your first time, we always like to give an invitation. Uh, the Word of God works on our hearts no matter what. So if you'd like me to pray for you, just make eye contact with me. Put your head right back down. Bless those people. I don't need to know why. Bless those people. If you're watching and listening online, God knows your heart. And believers, bless those people. I want to pray for us because whenever I do a message about something like this, it makes me check myself. And I'm not one of those pastors that says, you evil people. I know I mess up. Listen, I've told you many times, don't make me your example. I'm with you. I have struggles just like everybody else. But when I read things like this, it reminds me of something. That whenever I take the time to look within myself and find my priorities, I, that's the day I have an opportunity to make a change. When God reveals the truth, when the Word of God acts like a mirror, 
and we look at it and it reflects who we really are. It's like it says in James, if you look in the mirror and see your hair is messy and walk away without fixing it, that's on you. When you see a reflection of yourself, it should make you make a change. I just pray that when we read the word of God, it makes us see ourselves and make a change. It makes us have joy, compassion. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for all that you do. God, we know that everything we have is from you. We don't thank you enough for it. We spend all of our time asking you for things without ever thanking you for the many things you've already blessed us with. None more valuable than your son. Because he came, died, and rose again so that anyone who believed that what he did was enough to guarantee their eternal life could have it free of charge. We don't have to earn it. We don't have to make any exchanges. We don't have to give anything up. We just have to believe in what he did. And your word says we'll have eternal life and you'll make the changes that need to be made. God, we thank you for your grace. We don't deserve that gift. If there's someone who doesn't know you that's listening, God, remove the doubt and the fear. That's the enemy trying to keep them captive. Let them see the love that put your son on that cross to take our place. And if they can believe, we just pray they reach out to us today. We'd love to celebrate with them. And God, for those of us who are believers, I pray we get back into the word and that you make that word the mirror that it is. Let it reveal to us who we are and what we're becoming. And give us the strength of character and the faith to make the changes so that we're happy with what we see in that mirror. Give us a passion for you. We know, Lord, as we see the events going on around the world, this world can't last forever. But your kingdom does. So let us invest in that. Let our hearts and minds be focused on that. Because at the end of the day, that's all that matters. We just thank you, God, for all that you do. We pray that you'd go with us and keep us safe. And if you don't return to take us home, let us come together one more time and give you all the praise and glory you're so worthy of one more time. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.